Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word, open up to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. I don't usually get to preach uh, this close sermons this close together. A couple weeks ago, I was we started uh, in a, a two-part sermon, and normally it's a couple months between sermons for me, so this is good that uh, it'll still be kind of fresh in our mind from last time. Um, <clears throat> if you remember, I was uh, talking about Christ-likeness last time, and um, here in Philippians chapter 3, and it was part one of, of two parts, so today we'll start part two. Um, the first one, part one, was um, uh, Christ-likeness, uh, the pursuit, and today's title is Christ-likeness, uh, imitation living. So if you're a note-taker, it's imitation living. I want to start by reading through uh, the passage, and then um, uh, we'll move forward from there. But Philippians chapter 3, we left off verse 16 last time, so this morning I'd like to start in verse 17, and we're actually going to go into uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, okay? So Philippians 3, 17 through uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for a song that we can sing. Lord, thank you that you have given us instruction on Christ-likeness, and thank you, Lord, that you have given us each other, Lord, that we should be following those, imitating those who are living godly, that we may grow and mature in Christ-likeness. We thank you, Father, for paying our debt, Lord, for our sins being forgiven in Christ, that you have broken those chains and freed us from the domain of darkness, Lord, and you have transferred us into your kingdom of light. What an amazing thing. Lord, I pray this morning that you would use your word to open our hearts to, to bring about an uh, reestablished desire, or perhaps a desire for the first time to follow you in Christ-likeness. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you for your glory, for your gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so like I said, last time we were in uh, verses 12 through 16, um, and the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi regarding the subject of Christ-likeness. And if you remember, we said Christ-likeness was the prize, uh, which Paul was pressing on toward. He was very specific that he had not yet reached the place of Christ-likeness. 
It was not something, however, that he was sauntering toward or shuffling his feet toward. That's not how he described it. He said he was straining forward to what lies ahead. Again, notice his use of language indicating that he wasn't there yet. It still lied ahead for the apostle, as it does for all Christians. His words carry the idea of the runner who runs for the prize, and before he reaches the end, he's already stretching forward to cross that line, even before his feet can get him there. Christ-likeness is God's plan for Christians. As we were reminded last week, um, that God predestined his children to be conformed into the image of his son. It's God's plan. So Paul made Christ-likeness his singular focus. And that's to say that he had his his eyes fixed on that prize, and nothing was going to knock him off of that path. Nothing was going to knock him out of the lane he was racing in. Again, he said it twice in the passage last time that, that he was not yet there. He has not reached complete Christ-likeness because he still battles sin, just like you and just like me. He wanted that to be clear in their minds, that, that the apostle is not there yet. He's not reached it. Ongoing sin is the barrier to Christ-likeness. Christ was perfect in every way, completely without sin, If we didn't sin, we would be like him. It is as simple as that. Let me remind you, though, that that to be sure, this is not the pursuit of salvation, uh, but the pursuit of Christ-likeness, which follows a person's salvation. And we don't want to get those confused. The pursuit is a result of and is motivated by our salvation. That's why Paul said in verse 12, I press on to make it my own because... Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ made him his own at salvation. Then and only then does a person pursue Christ's likeness in response. There's no pursuit of it prior to salvation for anyone. But by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, he changes the repentant sinner from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness with a new heart and new desires, and he does this by the power of his Holy Spirit. The last thing we learned was that thinking the way Paul does, that we haven't reached it yet, and behaving the way he does in a a focused pursuit of Christ-likeness is the mindset of the mature. Mature Christians think this way about themselves, that they are not sinless and will not be until what lies ahead is realized. When Christ returns and we're finally free from this body of death, then we'll reach the prize because we will be like him, sinless. Can you imagine that? Mature Christians focus on pursuing the prize of Christ's likeness. Now, if the realization that you cannot be sinless on earth causes you to think it's no big deal to sin, then you're not understanding the point. Hey, we, we should examine ourselves to see if that kind of thinking describes us. We should not be asking if we are sinless, but if we are sinning less. That's really the point. Am I growing as a Christian in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I growing in holiness, in Christ-likeness? The difficulty here is that we don't want to go to the point where we're excusing ongoing sin, 
but we all know it's there. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we should be continually killing that sin in our lives. It is the process known as progressive sanctification. Those who have been born again have been saved from the eternal penalty of sin by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and have been given eternal life. The Apostle Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1, 5-9, For this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So today we'll look at how Paul continues writing about the subject of pursuing Christ-likeness. And he does so by calling on the church to be imitators. He wants the church to follow godly examples. Whether we know it or not, everyone follows someone. To say that someone is a follower, though, uh, isn't usually thought of as a good thing. All right, we recognize and we reward leadership and look down on, or at least tend to not value people for being followers. I mean, no, we don't raise our kids and say, I really hope you're a follower. Right? Although, as Christians, that means something different, right? But you name the great leader in history or any famous person, I guarantee you they followed someone. Have you ever noticed in interviews of movie stars or musicians or politicians, uh, this, this question always appears in some form. Who was your inspiration? Right? Who, who are your heroes? Who was your mentor? Someone introduced them to something and taught them something by the way they did it. We have interests and desires. We tend to follow those who are interested in the same things and who do them or know them better than us. We often have mentors that don't even know there are mentors. We imitate people because we want to be like them or do the same things they do. And sometimes we don't even recognize that we've begun to imitate someone. Imitating the wrong person, however, is dangerous. That's why parents try to be careful with who their kids hang out with. But adults are just as prone to imitating the wrong people. What we desire in life is a driving force behind who we will imitate. We're all going to imitate someone, and Paul addresses this by telling the church exactly who to imitate and why. Look at our first Verse there, verse 17 today, Philippians 3. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Okay, this brings us to point one today, which is imitate godliness. Imitate godliness. He doesn't beat around the bush here, does he? He's telling the people to follow his example in the pursuit of Christ likeness. Before we get tempted to think that sounds arrogant, we should remember that he also just finished telling the church he's not there yet. He just finished telling them he's not perfect. He doesn't have it all together. Yet, he still tells them to imitate him. He's concerned here about the negative influences coming into the church through people who are ungodly. He's concerned about what is drawing their gaze. So he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Why? 
because it's the godly example. He wants them to imitate godliness. And they can find it not only in Paul, but in, in those who are already imitating Paul, two of whom he's already told them about, as we saw when we were in chapter 2. He talked about uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Okay? This, this call to imitate is a call uh, to the church to pattern their lives after Paul because he is focused on the pursuit of Christ-likeness to make it his own. Okay? He's not a perfect person, but that is his pursuit, his singular focus. It's his desire, and he's directing them to desire the same thing by his example, to keep their eyes on those who walk according to his example means is what that means is not only to look for that example in others but to choose to imitate them in it it's one thing to notice someone's godly living it's another thing to actually imitate that and he wants them to move to that point and remember that the biblical usage of the word walk here it regards our daily living from day to day how we live our lives now you might ask why a Christian would want to imitate another Christian? Why not just imitate Christ? Well, for one thing, God has designed the Christian life to work that way. For another thing, Jesus was always perfect. He never sinned against anyone and never had to repent or ask forgiveness. He never had to repair a relationship that he messed up. There was never a time when he wasn't in right relationship with the Father. Part of God's plan for the Christian life is that we work through these things as sinners living with sinners in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Not only had Paul just told them about his own pursuit, but they know Paul personally. They know his example. They've, they've lived with him. Though it might seem strange, the biblical instruction for Christians is to follow the patterns of daily living of other Christians so long as they're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel in accordance with the word of God. This requires us to be discerning. Something we learn from watching godly people is their pattern of dealing with sin in their life. When someone sins against another person and follows the biblical instruction to confess and repent and seek forgiveness, I can learn from that. I can learn from a brother or sister in Christ who responds biblically to sin in their own life. And when the one they sinned against forgives them and restores that relationship, I can learn from that. I can imitate that in my own life. Imitating other Christians is biblical. Paul instructed the Thessalonian church not to be idle, but to be hard workers so they would not be a burden to anyone else. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we, we were not idle when we were with you. Paul has set the example of hard work and told them to imitate him. That's a godly thing. Hard work is a godly thing. God's word tells leaders to be examples for the people to follow. This is, this is right in the scripture. 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And God's word also tells Christians to imitate their leaders' way of life. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is normal. It's, it's the Christian thing that we would imitate 
other believers. Not if they're doing something wrong, though. I think that's clear. Is there anyone in your life who is imitating Paul's pattern of life that you can imitate? Are you imitating their pursuit of Christ-likeness? Whether you tell them you're imitating them or not? Think about that. Is there anyone that you're imitating? Maybe you don't even realize it. Are you pursuing Christ-likeness in such a way that other Christians could imitate you? Would you say to someone, brother or sister, join in imitating me? That doesn't sound right, does it? Uh, but that's what Paul did. And something we need to consider, can others imitate my way of life? Can others imitate your way of life because you're pursuing Christ-likeness? If not, why not? Let's ask those questions of ourselves. Why wouldn't someone be able to imitate me? If not, could it be because you're not pursuing Christ-likeness? It could be because you're, you're off track and you're imitating the wrong people. You might have your eyes fixed on those who are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is the next point in the sermon. Point two, avoid worldliness. In the pursuit of Christ-likeness, avoid worldliness. This next group represents the opposite of pursuing Christ-likeness. Paul has told them specifically to imitate his way of life in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. Now he has to give a strong warning. This group is worldly and self-focused. These are leaders or teachers who claim Christ-likeness, but they live as his enemies. These are not the atheists or the agnostics that you know. They're not the Buddhists, the Hindus, or the Muslims, or any other religious group that's clearly outside of Christian orthodoxy, though we, we should not imitate them. We know that. No, but these are people more dangerous because they claim to love Jesus. They claim to follow Jesus, and yet they're masquerading as Christians. Look at our next two verses, verses 18 and 19 in our passage in Philippians. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Paul's warning the church about these people because some are imitating them and being deceived. We read about false teachers in Scripture. We believe they exist today and, and that they are doing evil. We hear someone preach about the dangers of false teachers and we nod in agreement. But do you ever think about who they are? Do you ever consider that you might even be imitating someone like this? Or do you think that only happens to other people somewhere? We live in a time where we have more access to false teaching than any other time. But are we recognizing it? Do you read the newest Christian book because you're told it's a Christian book and not pay attention to who's writing it and what they believe and what they teach? What about online content, social media, sermons, podcasts, or other places you can find supposedly Christian teaching? Do you think through what you're exposing yourself to and do you compare it to what the Word of God says? Are you expecting that false teachers will have a sign around their neck? Do you think They'll warn you that what they're about to say is false and unbiblical. 
there are two major reasons why we fall prey to the false teacher, sin and a lack of knowledge. Paul says here that there are many in this camp, and he's told the church about them often. This was a big problem in the early church already, and it's an extremely big problem today. Paul exposes his heartbreak over those who would be deceived by what is false. He's in tears even writing this letter, not only over those who have already been lost to this deception, but over the thought that more will be deceived. So he warns the people about them, and he describes who they are. How do we recognize them? First, he says, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? The cross of Christ is not just two beams of wood that he hung on. Paul means, what Paul means here is that they are enemies of everything encompassed in and, and what the cross represents and accomplished. They are enemies, therefore, of Christ's substitutionary atonement. They're enemies of his once-for-all sacrifice of his propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of God. They're enemies of his resurrection from the dead, enemies of imputed righteousness. They're enemies of his justification. That is the declaration from God that a sinner is righteous in Christ. They're enemies of eternal salvation. They're enemies of Christ-likeness itself. They claim to be Christian, but are enemies of the main event. They're enemies of the, the good news that has been proclaimed. To the Corinthians, Paul said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and what? Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. And 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. To the Galatians he said, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 6.14 It's all about the cross. Yet these people are not dead to sin and living to righteousness. Paul says they're walking as enemies. And though he doesn't specify who they are, he gives examples to the church so that we'll be able to recognize them. Certainly, the Judaizers that he talked about earlier uh, at the beginning, they fit into this category. Paul called them dogs and evildoers. It could have also been the Gentiles and all their false gods. Both of these groups would be marked by the things that Paul lists out. Look what he said. Their end is destruction. That's not a bad day. Okay, a person doesn't come back from this. Let's not take this lightly. It's forever. Look at the word end. This is the literal meaning of the Greek word Paul used, telos. This does not mean end in a chronological sense. It's, it's not the end of time or that something just stops. This does not refer to extinction or annihilation or the end of existence, it has the idea of total ruin. What Paul means by end is the ultimate destiny of the, of the uh, enemies of the cross of Christ. It's about a goal achieved, 
a result attained. It's the final state or condition of a person in an ongoing way for eternity. And in the case of the enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul identifies their end. He identifies the result attained by their active opposition to God. What does Paul say that end is? Destruction. Let's look at that word a bit. Destruction. The Greek word is apolia. Okay, this has the idea of an utter and hopeless loss of all that gives worth to existence. It is from a compound word in which the first part is referring to separation and the second part is referring to destruction or ruin. This is the separation for the purpose of destruction. The Bible is not silent on this this destruction uh, that Paul says awaits the enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul himself wrote about this to the Thessalonian church. He identified them as those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. After saying that God would come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on them, he said, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 Jesus said we should not fear those who persecute us and can kill the body but not our soul. He said, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. God is doing the destroying, by the way, not Satan. Satan will be being destroyed along with every enemy of the cross of Christ. Those who are not enemies are those whom he rescues by the power of the cross. He says here, their God is their belly. Paul's using this word here not just to refer to the stomach, but metaphorically to to, uh, those who would satisfy their own fleshly desires. Their God is not Yahweh. Their God is the unrestrained satisfaction of self. Whether it be food or drink or sexuality, power or wealth, you name it. This is about appetite. In other words, no matter what they claim... They do not worship God, they worship themselves as God and are only concerned with satisfying everything their flesh, their fleshly appetites desire. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Titus 1.16 We're called to deny self and take up the cross daily and follow Christ. Not deny Him, Deny self. What else? They glory in their shame. Shame is disgrace or dishonor. It is a painful and unpleasant thing, but at the same time, it's a gift from God to us. Something that God intended for us to experience as a way to bring about Christ-likeness. But our culture says shame is unnecessary. And in fact, shame is wrong. Think about the pain receptors God has given us. Pain is God's warning signal. When something hurts, your immediate reaction is to pull back, right? to protect yourself, to stop what you were doing before it gets worse, before you're seriously injured. Without pain, we wouldn't know that the knife is slicing our fingers when we're cutting vegetables in the kitchen. Without pain, a wrestler wouldn't know when to tap out before his arm gets broken. Pain is a good thing. 
in the same way, shame is meant to be painful. It's a warning signal that something is wrong. And we need to recoil from it. But what are these people doing? They're glorying in their shame. Honestly, is there anything in our culture that that people are ashamed of anymore? We used to be ashamed of things. We used to be ashamed of things like abortion, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, out-of-wedlock pregnancy, drunkenness, blasphemy, you name it, on and on. But now we glory in it. All you have to do is look at the internet or TV or, or social media, politics. Everything that used to be evil is now good. Not only that, but it is celebrated, promoted, and you should be ashamed for not embracing it. The Scottish theologian Thomas Boston spoke about shame this way. The natural man's heart is where his feet should be, fixed upon earth. His heels are lifted up against heaven, which his heart should be set on. His face is toward hell, his back toward heaven. He loves what he should hate and hates what he should love, joys in what he ought to mourn for and mourns for what he ought to rejoice in, glories in his shame and is ashamed of his glory, abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. Look at Paul's last example of the many who are enemies. They are those with minds set on earthly things. In simple terms, this is the idea that the focus of their lives is on everything earthly. If if the mind had an eye, it would look everywhere but up. It would look at and for those things that are fleshly and physical and temporary. Paul listed out some earthly pursuits in his letter to the Colossians. Instead of having our minds set on them, he says the Christian is to put them to death. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists them out. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are earthly things. He says, put them to death. And of course, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a, it's a much bigger list than that. But it gets at the heart of most of the sin we face. And it's all sort of encompassed by idolatry. All of the belly gods that these people worship, it's all idolatry. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians, your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And look at verses 12 through 15. Another warning here. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who who, uh, would like to claim that in their boasted mission they they work on the same terms as we do. He's talking about false apostles. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
their end will correspond to their deeds. Unfortunately, we, we often don't recognize the danger here because it creeps in. And we lack, we lack knowledge of the Word of God and, and what the truth is because we're not pursuing Christ-likeness. And also, we don't recognize the danger because sin is so deceptive. What is the Christian to do? Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example we have in Paul and imitate godliness. The Christian life is, is a battle by design. God gives us the trials of life to make us into the image of His Son. It's also important that we do not think that this is all life is about. The saying uh, isn't true that the only things that are certain in life are death and taxes. They're certain, right? We, we know they are certain. But let me remind you of something, Christian. In your pursuit of Christ's likeness, there's another certainty that far exceeds everything else, and that is your eternal hope in Christ. We've seen that we need to imitate godliness and avoid worldliness already, but, but now we get to our third and final point in pursuing Christ's likeness, and that is understand your citizenship. Look at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You and I used to be citizens of this world, of this darkness, but when you receive Christ as your Savior through repentance and faith, you become a citizen of a new kingdom. You become a sojourner, an exile on earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. We are here to become more like Christ and to make disciples who become more like Christ. But this is not our home. This will be uh, something that is developed a lot more. We have an upcoming sermon series that we'll, we'll be going through uh, dealing with this subject of living as, ex as exiles. And we'll be looking forward to that. And when we understand our citizenship is in heaven, the fact that we don't fit in here makes more sense. What Paul is doing here is making sure that people know that it's necessary that we remember not only where our home is, but who we're waiting for. He said, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he go? What's he going to do? What is it we're waiting for? Didn't he already save us? Christians have God's ordained work to do according to the good works he's prepared for us to do in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. What Paul is talking about when he says we're, we're waiting is meant to strengthen us when we remember the promise that Christ made to the disciples. If you turn over in John 14 with me. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. And look at what Christ says to the disciples there. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. This is what we're waiting for. And listen to the comfort from Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. What is the way? Well, he goes on later to tell him what the way is. Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. We read that. We read passages like that. How can we not be encouraged by that? If you're a believer, that is what you're waiting for. Think about the joy in that. Not just joy that you will someday have this when Christ comes, but joy right now, every day, because of Christ. This is what Paul means here, and and to be with Christ is to finally be Christ-like. He goes on in our text to say that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That life of pursuing Christ-likeness will come to an end. We'll no longer have to imitate, no longer have to watch out for worldliness because the one who has the power to subject everything to himself will transform us. We will be fitted for our homecoming. Our citizenship will be realized for all of eternity. I encourage you today to rejoice in that truth. Is what Paul is intending. Look at his statement in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. As he's in prison, with tears in his eyes, writing this letter, he expresses his longing for them. He wants to be with them. We saw that earlier in the letter. He says they're his joy and crown, and they are his beloved. But look at what he wants all of this to bring about in them. He says, therefore, which directs our attention to everything he's just finished saying and writing about in chapter 3 as the basis for what he says next, which is stand firm. Therefore, based on this knowledge, stand firm. Not in Paul, not in themselves and their pursuit of Christ's likeness, but stand firm in the Lord himself, the powerful one. In contrast to the focus of the enemies of the cross of Christ, which is on earthly things, the minds of the children of God are set on heavenly things. The dwelling place of our Lord Jesus Christ is kingdom of which we are citizens by embracing his cross, not by being enemies of the cross. Colossians 1, 13, 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I exhort you today with Paul to be imitators of godliness. Set your eyes on those who are examples in the faith, examples in biblical, Christ-like living. Search them out. Ask them for help, knowing that they're not perfect, but they are pursuing Christ-likeness like the rest of us. Avoid those whose God is their belly and gratify their every worldly appetite. I, I ask you to 
Examine who you listen to, who you read. Look at what they teach and what they say. Do some research. Do they fit any of these descriptions? And press on to make Christ-likeness your own. And by God's grace, then may He remind us each day of the certainty of our citizenship in heaven. And we rejoice in that every day as we pursue Christ-likeness. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you again for today. And thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the things that you give us to, to guide us. I pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves to see if we are imitating godly people, whether that comes from personal experience with them or from reading or listening to what they put out there. May we be discerning, Lord. Help us, Lord, to recognize the enemies of the cross of Christ. First and foremost, Lord, if that describes anyone here, that you would convict them of that. Lord, that you would convict them of their sin. Open their hearts to receive the word of truth. Lord, that they may repent and come to faith in Christ alone for salvation. And then begin the race, Lord, the pursuit of Christ-likeness. I pray you would expose that today in anyone that's here who is not your child. And Father, I pray that you would help us to have a right perspective about Christ-likeness that we would take the things that Paul's saying and, and be encouraged by it as we imitate others who are Christ-like. And Father, that we would avoid worldliness and that we would, as a way of motivating ourselves and helping ourselves to remember our citizenship. This, this is not our home, and we thank you, Lord, that we look forward to Christ's return, that he will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. What an amazing thing. But help us not just to sit back and wait for it, Lord, but to pursue it in our daily living. We thank you, Lord, for the joy of our salvation. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.